The American healthcare system is plagued with many inequalities, disproportionately impacting people of color and other marginalized groups. While many millions of people are affected, black people living in the United States bear the brunt of these healthcare disparities. Although they comprise only 13.4% of the United States population, they face uneven access to medical services, massive inequalities in the healthcare insurance coverage, and poorer health outcomes. While African Americans and other black folks in the U.S. have fought hard to change this narrative, institutionalized racism is still woven into the country's medical system. In the remainder of this podcast, our group of four will go on to examine the state of healthcare coverage from several distinct disciplines of study, political science, business, nursing, and art. By presenting this diversity of approaches, we will offer a succinct examination of the current state of medical care for the black community in the U.S. and shed light on the critical factors that uniquely impact their health outcomes. African Americans are one of the most politically engaged demographics in the country. Whether you are black or not, listening to black voices and promoting their perspective is integral to health reform efforts. We must take the initiative to right systemic and historic wrongs. And the four of us aim not only to shed light on medical disparities, but also humanize those and its effects and provide action points our audience can commit to. It is extremely unfortunate that we have not seen the progress hoped for among the black community. We have not seen the systemic changes that are desperately needed. So whether you are a part of the black community or not, how can we press for reformation and equal access to healthcare? Before we get into the breakdown of various statistics and current facts surrounding the American healthcare system, I want to preface with a call for mindfulness, a call for respect. As a culture which decides policy on numbers, hire candidates on grades, and determines self-value by a number of likes on a photo, it's easy to get lost behind statistics. This, more often than not, turns people's stories into numbers, subsequently dehumanizing them and discrediting the magnitude of their experiences. However, when we stop to listen to someone's story, we can break down the desensitized walls that have formed. This process can lead to healing on both sides of the issue. In an article authored by Esther Shapiro, a psychology professor at the University of Massachusetts, she discusses the important role that storytelling can play in personal healing and growth. She says that the stories of our lives, when we speak them and listen with textured attention to the official story and the hidden subsects, it helps us enrich resources for living and healing. The power of storytelling goes beyond the childhood fairy tales we may originally think of. The power of story is transformative and life-altering. The story of racism in the United States is a long one, rife with pain and contention. However, when this hurt is represented by a number, it does not carry the same weight or elicit the same impact. It is for that reason that personal stories are so essential for both justice for the oppressed and the healing for our shared society. That is why today, and in the next section of this podcast, Taylor will conduct a personalized interview to share the story behind those numbers with interviewee Chris Clay. The point of our little podcast right now is we're trying to look into health disparities in the African-American and like black community. Mm -hmm. And 
um, your story came to mind because this is something that's obviously very close to your heart and very close to your experiences. I feel like I could start off with like my overall perceptions of health yeah. at first. Yeah. Noticing disparities mm -hmm. and then how that definitely like affected her. Yeah, sounds affected great. Affected her um, health. Mm -hmm. My mom, growing up, she single parent. My had my brother at eighteen and nineteen years old. So um, always seen her as a strong woman, first of all. Yeah. Strongest woman I know. I owe a lot to her. Not even owe, because I know that she would have done it just because that's the type of person that she is. Mm -hmm. But just like being her son and seeing her go through everything, you just know like at the bottom of your heart you would do anything for that woman. Like, anything, yeah. yeah anything absolutely. at all. I would go to war for my mom. Yeah. Like, I would do anything. She's been uh, very foundational. Like although we we've definitely had like I of am course, her son. Of like, course. We go we go head to head. <laughs> yeah. She raised a vocal person. But, yep. um, like it's always love between us. Um, and growing up, like, I don't know, as she continued to get more and more into her work, you see, like, her health decline little by little by little. Yeah. Whether it was higher blood pressure, tension within muscles and stuff like that. Um, just a lot of, like, developing health issues. We would go to the doctor. She would get that. The thing that I dislike about the healthcare system within the United States, it's very, like, incremental. It worries about, like... It, it doesn't really cure anything. It just like prolongs situations. So mm -hmm. she's given pills and now like she's reliant on pills to even like feel feel normal. She can't just like stay off of pills. Yeah. And one thing that my mom does is like she's like I said, she's very vocal. So like she would tell the doctors like, Oh, like there's something wrong with this and then the doctor's like, Are you sure? Like, are you sure? And she was like, yes, I am like 100% certain that there's this something This is my wrong. body. <laughs> Something's not right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, like, but then they would always, like, disagree, and then they would put her on something else, and that would just lead to, like, even more of a health decline because now she's reliant on, on yeah. like, different substances and stuff like that. Because that's so, more complications, mm -hmm. really. That's more complications. That's more money on a, a federal health insurance that is, like, especially <laughs> after Trump got into office, like, it... it prolongs the, the issues as well but um, I think I became most aware of like how the pregnancy impacted her like not only during the pregnancy but like this past semester um, my mom has back surgery mm. um, and it was like directly connected to her like being pregnant with my, my the hopefully I'm hoping the last but my, my baby brother Amadi mm -hmm. um, so they said that there was a pinched nerve in her lower back, so in her lumbar region. And that pinched nerve, like, one day, uh, my brother and I, I just got home from work, and um, my and at the time, they were using my car, and they were like, Chris, can we use your car? And I'm like, yeah, sure, because our car was, like, the family car wasn't working at yeah. the moment. So um, we go, and my dad, like, runs upstairs. He's like, Chris, I need your car. And I'm like, all right, cool. Um, because the, I guess my, my dad had called the ambulance because my mom's like, like I can't feel my, my lower body like at all. Like she oh, couldn't wow. like get up, move or anything. So the ambulance came. My sisters were down like, and my sisters are like my, my rock too. Um, so they were like sitting there like wondering why, like why, are the, why is the ambulance here? Why can't mom feel anything in her legs yeah. and stuff like that? So I don't know, just seeing like that and going back to like the call that I got from my dad I remember I was laying in bed in Bhopal, um, and it was like June 9th and June 10th-ish. Um, he was like, I'm just call, 
we're very uh, we're a very emotionally detached family so like there was no emotion within his voice whatsoever i just heard like the seriousness and like the, the severity of the issue he's like um chris like i'm just calling to let you know that like your mom uh that she code blued which basically they had to revive her um because of like the complications with with the pregnancy that was related to like the high blood pressure that we talked about before and yeah. stuff like that yeah so just like seeing the development of how like the healthcare system didn't really like acknowledge her issues that she had and sort of diagnose their own issues and that caused a, 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 a very, very, very big reliance on the healthcare system to like, mm -hmm. you know it's there to cure, but it's not really curing her. Yeah. Like you see like people that are wealthy, they're able to get treated and they're cured. Like yeah. they don't have to worry about this issue. And before. it's done. Yeah, like it, it's just nipped in the yeah. bud. But having to constantly go like hospital visits, doctors, checkups, and stuff like that, like, um, and then like having my mom have to go through rehab to like learn how to walk again, mm -hmm. and have um, apparatus stuck in her throat like she couldn't breathe because they had to uh, put the apparatus in um, in her but to to help her breathe, mm -hmm. and she needed to wear that for like three months, and she needed to relearn how to talk, you know. Like, so just seeing all that, I'm a community health major for, for that purpose. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want other marginalized communities to like have to experience that, especially cause like the vigil event, like my mom was almost like one of those four times, black yeah. women, four times more likely to die during childbirth, you know? Exactly. So those were very, very difficult situations and to constantly like, healthcare is a privilege, it is, and a right. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> make it make, <laughs> make sense. It make sense. Like, so you're telling me yeah. people just deserve to like live an uncomfortable life like that, yeah. and that's a that's a privilege to them, you know. Yeah. Like they need to have an abundance of wealth just to get things cured. When I think that that's just inherent, you know. Exactly. It's like if we have the means to do it, why aren't we doing it? Yeah. And to be, to have the confidence to to have the national confidence of calling the United States like the the best country in the world, you know. Like I look at Europe. Europe is very good with with catering to to their mm -hmm. citizens and stuff like that we can barely provide the basic necessities to exactly. allow people to live a comfortable life there's a lot attached to it thank you for sharing chris it's not easy to share stories like these but we are grateful for the eye-opening attention they call to these issues we must remember the people at the heart of this nationwide dilemma in this continuing discussion of racial injustice in the healthcare system let's not overlook the 1964 civil rights act what is idealized to be versus what it currently is the 1964 Civil Rights Act was meant to ban discrimination in health-related institutions, but clearly it is not being followed. That begs the question, if we are not following the important foundational Civil Rights Act, how do we progress solving issues in the rest of the world? A major problem here is that unequal treatment goes against the Constitution, which in turn delegitimizes the rest of the Constitution. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. This right we are provided is meant not to only keep society stable, but also protect the people who keep the country running. This affects marginalized communities and at the same time is an issue affecting the entire nation. Why do you think people are so violent when we see racial inequality when inequality is evident despite legislation that would presume otherwise? There is no trust between the people and the government. It's only logical that if one side is acting without consequence, then the other marginalized side must do something about it. The people who run this country have significant power to change the influence of racism. And so the cry in the streets is a cry for power, power to the people.
The symbolism and deeper meaning of protests and riots are understandable and admirable. But that is not the only avenue left to us. We need systemic reform, comprehensive legislation, and it is possible. We can start by looking at other places that have much more successful medical options for their people. Canada and other countries with nationalized systems are great places to start. A nationalized medical system would take a blow to class divisions and racial bias. This might not solve the problem of what happens inside those medical buildings, but it would go a long way to improving and equalizing accessibility of care. Everyone in this country, despite class or race or any other identity, deserves access to health care. The problem of racialized health care is deep-rooted. In a country that prides itself on equal opportunity, there is still one-fifth of the overall racial ethnic population that reported no health insurance, cost barriers to physicians' visits, and no primary care provider. And even worse than that, a whopping 40% of the Latino population in the U.S. does not have health insurance or a primary care provider. If the United Nations describes access to health care as a human right, why are there still so much of a racial gap in the health care system? Even for the racially diverse patients that do get medical treatment, the issue of racism in the healthcare system goes much deeper. One aspect within the issue of racialized healthcare is racially biased pain assessment. In a study conducted by the University of Virginia, researchers found that 74% of white patients received pain medications for fracture injuries, compared to only 57% of African American patients. This shocking statistic brings to light the injustice within hospitals themselves not just for those who can't get into them in the first place. In his explanation of this study, Hoffman theorizes that the discrepancy of pain assessment for prescribing positions stems from lingering beliefs of biological differences between races. In particular, recent research has found that people, including trained medical health professionals, readily endorse inaccurate statements concerning biological differences between black and white people and that these beliefs are a contributing factor to the racial bias in attributions of pain experience. Simply put, doctors are subconsciously more likely to believe that a white person feels pain compared to a person of color. This can be extremely dangerous as we rely on our physicians to be accurate and professional when we are in need of medical attention. The bias in biological comparison can cloud the physician's judgment and lead misdiagnosis. In order to fully understand the implications both the medical system and medical facilities have on people of color, we decided to reach out to an expert. Bethany is looking at this particular topic from a nursing perspective, so we decided to reach out to her mom, who works as a nurse practitioner in a heavily populated Hispanic area. She talks about how racial bias plays a role in her ability to treat her patients. Let's get into that interview. Are there any cultural stereotypes that you're aware of that may influence your care? Yes. The one that comes to mind is something that we called Hispanic panic. So Hispanic panic is a well-known term in um, urgent care emergency room settings, which are the two places that I've worked, where... Hispanic people, usually it's going to be a young mom or a female, not so much the males, but the females, um, think their child or themselves are really, really sick when they're really, really not. So when they tell you about something, they will, I wouldn't say embellish the story, but any little tiny possible symptom for the last 15 years will pop into the history. Um, It's a very... They can be very histrionic at times. So it is hard to 
put that judgment in the back of your mind when somebody is telling you things and you're trying to sort out what's important and what's not. So an example would be due to Hispanic panic. If a Hispanic patient comes to me and tell me they're significantly short of breath and I am looking at them and they're sitting on the table breathing normally, I might not think they're as short of breath as somebody else who's sitting on the table looking like they're working to breathe telling me they are short of breath. Can you introduce yourself and what your job is? So my name is Sherry Peterson and I'm a nurse practitioner currently working in an urgent care. What does a nurse practitioner, being a nurse practitioner, entail? So basically I see patients and in the urgent care it could be for absolutely anything. They just walk in the door um, and tell you what's going on and then I order whatever testing is needed to figure out what's going on with them, prescribe medicine to hopefully make them better or send them on to a specialist or a surgeon if they need to, whatever it takes to uh, to get them the health care they need. Where do you work? I work for a health system in Skagit County, which is considered, I, I would say rural, a rural community, a larger rural community. Um, we have three different clinics and we rotate between the three clinics. What percent would you estimate of your patients would consider themselves non-white? I would say probably 25%. What percentage would you say would consider themselves Hispanic or Latino? 20%. The language barrier is a common hindrance in patient care? It's a huge hindrance in patient care. Even though we use interpreters and we can use either a telephone interpreter or we can use a video interpreter, and I know in the hospital they actually have live interpreters who come with you, um, but it is still a big hindrance. There's been many times where even though I don't speak Spanish, I'm 100% convinced the interpreter is saying something that I am not saying. (laughs) Do you think that your patients trust you as a provider, your racially diverse patients? For the most part, the answer is yes, yes, but there are some cultural things that I don't understand that definitely get in the way. For instance, Hispanic patients um, want to leave with a medication. Whether it's a condition that needs a medication or not, in their eyes, my impression is that I have not done a good job or done my job right unless they leave with a medication. Do you think the language barrier is um, contributing to their general distrust to you? Um, I, I think it's cultural differences more than the language barrier. I think the language barrier does in some cases play in, but I think it's the cultural differences that are bigger. Do you see racially diverse patients struggling to have adequate help from insurance to get proper treatment? The nice part about my job is I don't see the insurance side of things. I just take care of the patients. Um, I do think in some cases there are patients who are illegally here um, and so they'll put off care way, way past when they should have come in. And then there's definitely patients who do do struggle, yes, do greatly struggle with the insurance. I do think that that is probably a barrier to them as well. In addition to bias on the side of physicians, there is also bias on the side of the minority groups that is also detrimental to obtaining the proper medical treatment. Throughout our history of racial discrimination, many of our oppressed groups have built up walls as a response to mistreatment in the past. This is true in regards to medical professionals as well. The African American and Hispanic community reported that 17.1% of the population did not trust their healthcare providers, compared to only 15.2% of people in white communities.
and the gap only grows larger when you factor in lower household incomes. These statistics may not seem drastic, but when lives are at stake, 2% is a big deal. The pain that has caused these biases and distrust was built over a long period of segregation and oppression, and likewise will take many years of proper treatment and honest physicians in order to restore this trust. This is necessary in building a truly equal healthcare system. While there is a huge problem in that many racially diverse Americans don't have equal access to healthcare, there are also issues that need to be highlighted within the system itself. These issues of bias within hospitals and clinics come from a broader and more deep-rooted cultural ideology of internalized racism. Even if the government ensured that all ethnic people groups in the U.S. have equal access to healthcare, the issue of racism in the healthcare industry won't subside until we all believe that we as a nation are equal. Going on with this very important topic to legislative solutions, I can look at this from a specific perspective as a political science major. The indisputable numbers showcasing the lack of access to health insurance for African Americans is extremely transparent. After reflecting on the fundamental health care insurance inequalities impacting the U.S. black community significantly, I would propose a national policy to combat this ongoing problem. The lack of Medicaid expansion in crucial states, health disparities, and health care provider shortages make it incredibly hard to comprehensively address America's health care needs. And while these challenges are factors that touch many Americans and various parts of the country, their gravity is uniquely seen in the South and among the African-American population there. So when discussing potential new moves, let's start with addressing what we have to work with. The Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA, has helped ensure healthcare coverage for millions of Americans. The uninsured rate among African Americans declined drastically after the law was implemented under the Obama administration. Of the more than 20 million people who have gained coverage under the ACA, 2.8 million of them were African American. Comparatively, however, the African American population is continuously more likely to be uninsured than white Americans. As of 2018, the uninsured rate among African Americans was 9.7%, while it was just 5.4% among whites. African Americans were far more likely to be covered through employer-sponsored health care or private health care insurance. 55% of African Americans used that private health insurance in 2018, while 41.5% were enrolled in Medicaid or another type of public health insurance. While coverage expansion under the ACA have hastened the progress toward universal coverage, the continued high cost of many coverage options means that access to affordable health care is still a challenge for many Americans, mainly African Americans. The average family spends $8,200 or 11% of their family income per year on health premiums. Out-of-pocket costs for actions like office visit co-pays, prescription drugs, and surprise out-of-plan medical bills continue to wreak havoc on families' financial security. For African Americans, the average annual cost for health care premiums is almost 20% of the average household income. A significant expense to bear when considering income inequality and other economic challenges for the specific demographic. The high cost of coverage has kept the number of the uninsured acceptably high. Out of the 27.5 million people that are still lack health care coverage, 45% cite cost as the reason for being uninsured. Additionally, the Commonwealth Fund estimates that an additional 87 million people ages 19 to 64 are underinsured. That is, they have coverage, but their plan leads to unusually high out-of-pocket costs relative to income strain, personal finances, or even debt. 
Of these underinsured adults, 18% are African-American. Under the ACA, Medicaid eligibility was expanded for adults with incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level. This expansion was initially written into the ACA as a requirement for all states. Due to a 2012 Supreme Court ruling in the National Federation of Independent Business versus Sabella 16, it is now just an option for conditions. To date, 37 states, including the District of Columbia, have expanded Medicaid through traditional means or the Section 115 waiver process. The states that have not expanded Medicaid are primarily concentrated in the southern region of the United States. In the South, African Americans are disproportionately represented. According to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Minority Health, 58% of African Americans lived in the South as of 2018. They are also more likely to be uninsured with Texas, Florida, and Georgia being home to uninsured African Americans' largest shares. Due to the failure to expand Medicaid, the South is now home to the nation's sickest people and is where health disparities between whites and people of color are the most pronounced. By taking political action at the national level and conducting a policy that expands national health care into southern states, African Americans will be covered extensively by nationalized health care saving money and innumerable lives in the process. In conclusion, we have addressed a very significant problem facing our country today. And we did that through the lens of four very diverse disciplines of study. Firstly, art, then nursing, business, and finally, political science. Racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. We address that whether that be through insurance coverage, access, or general quality of care. These are just many factors producing inequalities in health status in the United States. Eliminating these disparities is politically sensitive and challenging in part because their causes are intertwined with a contentious history of race relations in America. So that leaves many people like you and me and our audience members questioning, what can we do to address the inherent racial and ethnic disparities that are intertwined in our healthcare system? Well, the goal of this podcast was to raise general awareness because that is a paramount starting point in order to fully and comprehensively address the significant and overarching problem. Firstly, we want to raise public and provider awareness for ethnic and racial disparities in care, whether that be through insurance coverage, ability to get access to health care, or general care in the medical system. Secondly, we wanted to provide a solution at the national level since healthcare is a nationalized issue. Expanding healthcare coverage and allowing nationalized healthcare coverage into the southern states would be a paramount step for universal coverage of healthcare for people of color, specifically African Americans. As aforementioned, the ACA significantly helped people of color secure healthcare coverage. This would be a big step forward for people of color, for them to receive nationalized healthcare. Because healthcare is a right, not a privilege. So today, by just giving you general information of how inherent health disparities are both in our medical system and healthcare facilities and inability to get access for coverage, today we hope to provide you with the foundation and proper knowledge to go about your ballot. Voting is an extremely important right that you have as a citizen in the United States. 
And if you are like me and my other group members, we support nationalized healthcare because through policy study, it has significantly shown that it impacts people of color in a very positive way. So if you stand behind that, understanding where your political figure stance is in that regard, and what policy they back. So you can go online and whatever political figure interests you, look at their political stance, whether they support nationalized healthcare or do not, and you can make up your mind from that policy alone if it is an extremely paramount policy to you and how it impacts the people of the United States. From there, you are able to apply your voice, you're able to verbalize and vocalize what is important to you, and that is how you make an impact in the United States. But we have to start from the grassroots level and work our way up. So by addressing this topic, by speaking out, and by demonstrating the health disparities today, hopefully we have informed you and given you a base amount of knowledge for you to go use your voice to make nationalized healthcare a right, not a privilege anymore.